This week on Dairy Defined, we feature Representative Colin Peterson, Chairman of the House Agriculture Committee and a Democrat from Minnesota. Mr. Chairman, thank you for joining us today. Glad to be with you. Glad to be with you. What do you see as the biggest challenge dairy faces right now? And, and does the House Ag Committee have a role to play in meeting those challenges? It's a changing industry. Um, the small farmers are older. And in a lot of cases, the kids don't want to take over the farm. You know, or if they do, they have to get bigger. Um, so we have to make sure that the, the tools that we put together fit the changing situation. You know, we just have to make sure that the safety net uh, follows what's going on in in uh, dairy, and that we have you know the the right kind of um, protection available to people so that they can maintain their operations. As you look at the supply chain, what do you think needs to be fixed? And what role would you see your committee have in finding solutions? There are problems, but I'm not sure that the government is going to be the one that fixes it. <laughs> um, you know, we have to work with industry and work with the, um, the producers to help them uh, have a system to work through this if we get into problems in the future. So we clearly uh, the, the COVID-19 uh, exposed a lot of issues. And, um, you know, we are at the present time focusing on those. Uh, so one of the things that, that I'm going to try to do, the, 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 the department, for example, has a, a plan that they have put together regarding African swine fever. They have a plan on uh, foot and mouth disease, you know, but they're just plans and they're not actually implemented. What I'd like to see us do is have things on the shelf, ready to go for these things that we know are probably going to be there at some point, you know, in time. So what I mean by that is that I want to work with the department to come up with rules, uh, change the law so that all of this money can come out of the CCC. So you don't have to have appropriations. You don't have to have special bills. You don't have any of that. And so you've got something on the shelf for the secretary to be able to come in and deal with it. Now, this thing that happened with the depopulation of hogs and chickens and turkeys, uh, because the animals were not sick, the secretary didn't have the authority to go in there and help. And so in the HEROES Act, I'm giving the secretary that authority, and I'm going to make it retroactive to help those producers. They had to go in there and depopulate. They had to go do it on their own. Those are the things that we're going to try to nail down to have in place I don't want to get into another situation where all of a sudden we're flying by the seat of our pants and we're trying to develop policy on the fly when people are in the process of depopulating and all this sort of thing. And so that that's what we're working on. We're, we're not that far along, but we've done a bunch of preliminary work and we're going to try to work with the department to have this stuff available for the future. What surprised you about how the food sector responded to COVID-19 and, and what can agriculture learn from the response we've seen? You know, I think the farmers, they just kept farming. <laughs> so I don't know that it affected, you know, in my district, the farmers, you know, they just kept doing what they do. Uh, the problem has been with the rest of, you know, the the processors, the meat pan, meat packing plants, the all of those other parts, elements of, of agriculture, they were a much bigger problem than the farmers were. And so it was a matter of, of uh, having a place for them to take their animals 
Uh, it was a matter of getting the right kind of seed and fertilizer and all that kind of stuff lined up. Uh, and I think everybody has learned some lessons on that. I think the private sector is going to, by and large, take care of that. The, the bigger problem are these other issues like the disease issues and so forth that, that need to have some kind of an on-the-shelf response ready to go. Because it's not a question of when or if we're going to have African swine fever. It's going to be a question of when. Current law of the land is the Farm Bill um, that you led in 2018. It's been in place now for a year and a half. It's had quite the stress test with the COVID-19 pandemic. What lessons could Congress draw from COVID-19 when it's time to write a new Farm Bill in 2023? At the time we did it, I said I didn't think the safety net was adequate. And I think this has demonstrated that it's not. But it, we don't have the money to, to do probably what needs to be done. You know, so I think it's the best we can do at the present time. And we'll just have to see where we're at when the next farm bill comes up. The one place where I think we made a huge difference was in dairy. Uh, the changes that we finally were able to get in the dairy margin coverage uh, and the, uh, the uh, dairy revenue insurance. Dairy now has, I think, the best safety net of any part of agriculture. Uh, and especially for small dairy farmers, they without a doubt have the best safety net that there is right now, if they utilize it. <laughs> and one of the problems has been getting them to utilize it, partly because of the failure of the, the uh, margin protection program and so forth. But, you know, I think what happened the last two months were these big checks, I think are gonna make believers out of everybody. Uh, so, uh, you know, so we'll keep working on it, but, but to put too much of a floor underneath the big commodities costs too much money. We'll just have to see how this all sorts out. But I, I'm really worried about what's going to happen this winter if we don't have these. The only thing that's saved us at this point are these facilitation payments and the CFAP payments. You know, and if that money would not have gone out to the farmers, we'd be in big trouble right now. And if those stop, that's going to be an issue. And number two, I think it's going to be an issue however this plays out because farmers are getting used to it. And I think there's potentially going to be a backlash because of these huge payments that were made the last couple of years. <clears throat> In general, when you look at the policy response to COVID-19 um, and you see USDA with the payments that were were put into place and you see congressional authorization for the spending and stimulus packages. Do you feel like the federal response to farmers in the COVID-19 crisis has been adequate? And, and if there are spots for improvement, what would those spots be? Well, I think overall it's been adequate to the amount of money that's been put out there. Uh, the problem is they have missed certain things. There's certain commodities that were left out, uh, certain commodities that did not get the right treatment. So I, I wouldn't um, criticize the amount, but I would criticize the way it was put together. We didn't have much input into it, and I think that was a mistake. I think they could have engaged us more in that process, and we maybe wouldn't have had as many of these commodities left out. Focusing in on dairy, um, thanks to your leadership, uh, the HEROES Act, which the House of Representatives passed earlier this year, has an incentive for uh, a three-year sign-up. For, for the DMC program to, to boost some of that enrollment, um, which you know, was less than 50% last year um, going into 2020. 
Um, you also have a production history adjustment. Do you think these changes will help boost producer enrollment if we can get it into a final package? Well, I, I don't know if those changes in and of themselves are going to help. I think, the, as I said earlier, the fact that these last two checks were sizable, uh, I think are going to get people's attention. <clears throat> but I think the biggest problem, well, there were two problems. One was the margin protection program. People got burned and they just walked away and didn't want to take a look at it. That was one thing. But the other problem was this uh, decision tool that USDA put on their website. And I fault that for the biggest reason why there wasn't a sign-up. Because the decision tool completely focused on the futures market. And what it basically told farmers were, you know, don't buy this because you're not going to get any money you know, because they were used in the futures market, which was $20, you know, and this pushes the whole thing in a completely wrong direction. You know, the farmers are looking at this as whether they're going to get money. If they put money, if they go into the program, are they going to get money back? That's how they look at it. That is completely wrong. <laughs> that is not how they should look at this. This is an insurance policy. And, you know, any crop farmer, uh, would not get financed by his banker if he doesn't have crop insurance. And we need to get to the point where the bankers won't finance a dairy operation unless they sign up for these programs because it needs to be part of their operation. It needs to be part of their normal operating expenses. It gives, like for small dairy farmers, they basically have break-even coverage for very little money. You know, so I think, you know, they're overhauling this decision tool at my request and uh, I hopefully, I haven't seen the final product, but hopefully it is not going to get all tied up in futures markets. This is really about you buy 950 coverage. This is how much gross revenue you're protecting. This is what it costs you, period. You know, and frankly, you, need, you don't need to think about this more than two seconds. <laughs> if you're a small producer, buy 950, lock it in. Taking this 15% discount is a no-brainer, and hopefully we'll get that percentage up significantly. The USMCA took effect on July 1st. What do you see that as doing for agriculture, and how do you make sure it works as intended? There's already some concerns about backsliding on dairy from the Canadians. Well, I expected them to backslide in the first place, so I, this is not a big surprise. I never thought we were going to get anything out of Canada on dairy in the first place. Uh, in fact, frankly, what we got was more than I expected. You know, so we just have to hold them to the agreement so they don't use the class seven to undermine our market. That's the biggest thing. But in terms of us getting any significant market share out of Canada, they ain't going to happen. You know, uh, so it's really a, a defensive action when it comes to Canada. With Mexico, that is a big market. And the biggest thing with the USMCA, it didn't screw it up. You know, and so we need to maintain that market and we need to improve that market, which I think USMCA does. So I think all in all, it's a good agreement. It's not going to change the world. It's not a dramatic situation, but it's good for the future. And uh, we want to clearly maintain that Mexican market. One topic that's been in a way placed on hold by all the response to COVID has been ag labor. Um, you played a big role in the Farm Workforce Modernization Act that passed the House last year. There would have been a Senate push this year, um, but that's been a bit stalled with everything else going on. What is the way forward to ag labor reform? And, and does the Farm Workforce Modernization Act still have relevance in the current environment? 
Well, I think it does. And I'm disappointed that the Senate, uh, you know, you know, I think it wasn't just the fact that what we're involved in. I just think the Senate uh, politically uh, is having a hard time dealing with this. And the Republicans are having a hard time dealing with this, I think, because of the president. Uh, it needs to get done, you know, and this is a real crisis and not just for dairy, but for produce and fruits and vegetables and a lot of other, uh, you know, hog industry and so forth, uh, chickens. So, you know, this bill isn't perfect, but it's, uh, it's something that we were able to put together in the House. We got some Republican support. We got a good, strong vote. And it's close to what we need. And so the sooner we can get this done, the better. And I'm do everything I can to, to try to get some senators on board, to get this thing to move over there, even if they have to scale some of it back a little bit. But it's, it's in the right direction of where we need to go to get this fixed. What advice do you give to some of the newer rural members of Congress and how to effectively pursue rural interests when the rural team keeps getting smaller and smaller? Well, I think, you know, um, the Democrats, you know, they don't have any problem understanding what to do in their districts. They get, they get it, you know, and they listen to their producers and they listen to agriculture. And uh, the problem they've got is their Democrats, <laughs> you know, and it's a big problem. It's a big weight drag, dragging all of us down because we've become such an urban party. You know, and uh, frankly, a liberal party, which does not go over in a lot of these farm districts. And so I would say the biggest problem, we're losing representation. There, that's, that's no question about that. But a bigger problem than that is the fact that we have almost no Democrats in farm districts. And that is a huge problem because you cannot do anything with any long term sustainability in Congress if you don't have bipartisan support. So that's the biggest problem. You know, it's, it's not only a problem with agriculture, it's a problem with uh, guns, you know, it's become very partisan. I'm the only one left that's actually uh, got NRA support. You know, uh, abortion, I'm the only one left that's pro-life in the Democratic Party in the House. Uh, and that's not good either because you can't do anything with one party. And I think these people are making mistakes by driving... Democrats out of their coalitions. And I think uh, people are making a mistake not having Democrats representing them in some of these districts, because that's what needed to, to make this work in the long term. And I don't know how you fix that. You know, these, they've, they've, they've reapportioned this thing and gerrymandered it. And that's part of the problem. But our party is probably part of the problem, too, because we just, uh, a lot of people in our party are tone deaf. And really, they don't understand a district like mine at all. Is, is this a needle that can even be threaded at this point, depending on how you emphasize messages? Well, it's become so partisan, it's hard to do. And it's part of why, uh, you know, I'm having more electoral problems than I had in the past because it's become so partisan. My problem is not is not me. My problem is my party. And uh, if I ran as a Republican, I'd probably get 80 percent. I fit my district. You know, and that's what we need to do. We need to find people that fit their districts. And we've done that this last election. We did it with suburban Democrats. That's what took the House back. Not rural farm district Democrats, suburban Democrats. And that's good. But we need some people like me 
to get elected, like the old blue dogs that we used to have. I wasn't going to play this card, um, Mr. Chairman, but to know this is the fourth different job I've interviewed you in. Um, and, and this ties to our conversation because the first time we ever spoke was election night, 1994. And that was the night that the Republicans took over both houses of Congress. It was a revolution. There was a lot of speculation at that time that you might switch parties. Knowing what you know now, should you have stayed a Democrat? Uh, yes. And why? Well, uh, you know, because I didn't agree with a lot of what they were doing there in 95. I didn't even seriously consider it at that time. At this point, my answer is this. You know, I spent all these years trying to figure out how to deal with the left-wing people in my party, and I've kind of figured out how to do that. And I keep telling the Republicans, at this stage of my career, I do not want to learn how to deal with the right-wing screwballs. So we got them in both parties, you know. Uh, but I've been, you know, um, up until the last couple terms here, you know, I've, you know, I've got a good relationship with the speaker. We've been able to work together on things. She's been very supportive of agriculture and what I've been doing. So I'm comfortable. But the last couple elections now with the people that are getting elected and the reapportionment, that's what makes you wonder about some of this stuff. But uh, I wouldn't be uh, comfortable in the Republican Party either. So what I really probably should do is restart the Farmer Labor Party, uh, which back in the uh, from like 1918 to 1938, the two representatives from my district were Farmer Labor, and they they caucused by themselves as Farmer Labor. They did not caucus Democrat or Republican. So maybe that's what I need to do is go back to my roots. The ghost of Floyd B. Olson would approve. <laughs> What is on the Ag Committee agenda for the rest of the year, and what are the must-do items for the committee? Well, we're supposed to do the Grand Grain Standards Bill. Uh, it needs to be reauthorized, the Grain Standards Act. Uh, also, the CFTC needs to be reauthorized. So those are two things that should be done. Uh, they're just authorizations, so if they're not done, the world doesn't come to an end. Um, so we don't really have anything that actually has to be done because the farm bill is in place. And, you know, the secretary is spending money like a drunken sailor and send, you know, to take care of the farmers, which is keeping everything together. So mostly what we're going to be focused on, as I said earlier, is trying to anticipate problems in the future, trying to put solutions on the, on the table, on the shelf, and to deal with things as they come up. You know, we'll keep busy the rest of the year. Well, it does sound like a busy year, and it certainly is a busy time for all of us, remotely or in Washington. Thank you for joining us from your home in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota. I'm glad to be with you, and uh, you guys would love to be here today. It's beautiful. So you know how Minnesota can be in the summertime. <laughs> we'll give our regards to Highway 10. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> That's it for today's podcast. For more information on NMPF's policy work on behalf of dairy farmers, visit our homepage, nmpf.org. When you're there, look for the Dairy Defined podcast, along with other original NMPF content, on the new Sharing Our Story page. You can subscribe to the Dairy Defined podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. We'll talk again soon.